Welcome to Credo with me, Father Andrew Eben, to the podcast journeying through the various articles of the Creed, the fundamental statement of our Catholic faith. Today we come to the very last articles of the Creed. We've reached the end. But as we do so, we're not looking back, we're looking forward. These are the final words of the Creed. I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The resurrection of the dead. Well, we might start by reflecting for a moment on our part in this, on our part, indeed, our share in the resurrection of the dead. We all share in Christ's resurrection. So just as Christ, taking on flesh in the Incarnation, shares in our human nature, so we all share in Christ's resurrection. And this is part of the extraordinariness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it were just one person rising from the dead, that would of course be extraordinary in itself. The power, however, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is such that it is not just one person being raised from the dead, the person of Jesus Christ. It is one person plus all those who believe in him. All of them. And Jesus himself makes this promise to us. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. That's in uh, John chapter 6, and in fact he makes that same promise three times in the same chapter. So a little later in the same chapter he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then again, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. All from John chapter 6. The verb in all these verses, by the way, the verb uh, to raise up is uh, the Greek word anastasio, which comes from the Greek word for resurrection, anastasia. Beautiful name. Anastasia, if you like, is the middle name of all Christians. We are all anastasian, raised up with Christ himself. Now that centrality of Jesus to the resurrection brings us to the next important thing we can reflect on because we can see in the light of his teaching that the resurrection is not just a process or a phenomenon the resurrection is actually a person this is something that Martha the sister of Lazarus has to learn you may remember that after the death of Lazarus Jesus makes this promise to the grieving Martha your brother will rise again. Now, Martha accepts this, but she sees it as some disconnected future event, disconnected from her personal situation and indeed from the person standing in front of her. So Martha says, I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, just as if, as I say, this is some future event unconnected to the present moment. But Jesus corrects her. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. What an extraordinary claim that is. I am the resurrection and the life. So the resurrection is not some distant, remote, unthinkable event in the future. The resurrection is the person standing in front of her right now. And Jesus goes on to explain it in full. 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now that last question, that challenge, do you believe this, is for all of us. There is a direct link and intimate connection between resurrection and faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And that person, we ought to add, is a real person. And we should be clear about this because the disciples themselves doubt it. Jesus is a real person in the resurrection. He eats. He has wounds which can be touched. He says to the disciples, See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. A spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So we believe then, in the resurrection of the body. Eternal life involves our body. And this again is, to say the least, an unusual claim. The usual claim, we might say, does not involve the body. What I mean by that is that among people who are spiritual rather than religious, people, say, who have vague New Age beliefs or just believe that we just carry on in some form beyond death, among those people there is, I think, a general acceptance that we carry on beyond death in a non-bodily sort of way. And if I sound like I'm being vague, that's because these are vague beliefs, you know, our spirits somehow go free, we enter some kind of spirit realm, however you want to describe it. What is controversial, what is shocking, even in Christianity, is the belief that the body is involved, not just the spirit. The Apostles' Creed, for example, uh, talks about resurrection of the flesh. This odd, intransigent, unnegotiable, unignorable substance, our flesh, this is what is raised. This is why, for example, for many, many years, Catholics and the Church generally were uncomfortable with the idea of cremation rather than burial. Uncomfortable, that is, with the physical obliteration at death of the body that is destined to be raised. Because, as the Catechism reminds us, Christ is raised with his own body, and the same applies to us. This is also St. Paul's teaching, that, like Christ, all those who believe in him will rise again with their own bodies, which they now bear. It is as shocking and as outrageous as the resurrection itself. Perhaps even more so, because it is not the only begotten Son of God being raised in the flesh. It is ordinary, lowly, you and I. But of course, Jesus dies to make us sons and daughters of God. Uh, Jesus dies in order that we might share his divine life and share in his resurrection. So you could say... This extraordinary resurrection of our body is simply one of the many extraordinary consequences of our close following of Jesus Christ. It is simply us doing what he does. We know, for example, that Jesus asks us to follow him in his crucifixion, to do as he does. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And just as in the sufferings of our life and in our self-denial we follow Jesus on the cross, so too we follow him in the resurrection. It is the consequence of our discipleship, 
The more closely we follow him, the more likely we are to share in his glory and in the glory of his resurrection. And then finally, the very last words of the creed, which are, and the life of the world to come. We end by looking forward. When she was in prison in England in the 16th century, the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots spent her time embroidering a tapestry with these words, En ma fin et mon commencement. In my end is my beginning. That's a profoundly Christian sentiment. We end by looking forward. The destination to which we travel in hope, that is heaven, is the home that God had intended for us from the very beginning. So we end this particular journey through the articles of the Creed by reflecting on that home and what it's like. In fact, for our discussion, there is something beautifully apt about ending by reflecting on the home we are meant for. So there are various descriptions of heaven in sacred scripture, various images or metaphors repeated throughout the Bible. Uh, so three of the most common are, for example, heaven as a feast, uh, and as a temple, and as a city. We can run through these pretty quickly. So firstly, the image of heaven as a feast. We see this repeatedly in the Gospels. Jesus talks of the righteous coming uh, from east and west, i.e. that is the Gentiles, that's you and I, to sit at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, sitting at table at the feast. And we also have the parable of the great banquet in the Gospel of Luke. But the particular variant, the really important variant of this, is the image of heaven as the wedding feast. Jesus compares heaven to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son. That's a central image. Uh, we also have the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids preparing, or not preparing, for the arrival of the bridegroom. And perhaps most importantly of all, the depiction of heaven in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible which culminates in the wedding feast of the Lamb, where Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the bridegroom, joining himself to his bride, the church. Always good to remember the salvation history culminates, like a good movie, in a marriage, not between two, uh, so to speak, secular individuals in love, but a marriage between Christ and his church. So that's the scriptural image of heaven as the feast. Of course, the wedding feast of the Lamb is also what we are invited to in the Mass, so perhaps it's also worth reminding ourselves once again at this point that the Mass is our foretaste of heaven. The sanctuary where Christ becomes present in the Blessed Sacrament is the very threshold of heaven, and perhaps as close as we are likely to get to heaven in this world. That proximity between the Mass and heaven brings us to another common scriptural image of heaven as a temple, a place of worship, of continual worship. Again, best examples probably from the book of Revelation, which describes heaven as God's celestial temple, complete with all the accoutrements of worship, so incense and censers, music from trumpets and harps, etc., etc., all quite familiar to us and present in their own way in our worship on Sundays at that threshold of heaven. And then finally, and again just very briefly, another common scriptural image of heaven is as a city, 
It's the new Jerusalem, what St. Paul calls simply Jerusalem above, and what the letter of the Hebrews calls, rather beautifully, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Once again, that city is described in the book of Revelation, particularly in Revelation chapter 1, which gives the iconic image of heaven's streets being paid with gold. However, all these, as I'm sure you realize, are symbols and analogies, very important and significant and informative analogies, but analogies nonetheless, not specifically detailed concrete realities. Pope St. John Paul II taught that heaven is not so much a physical place in the clouds as a living, personal relationship with the Holy Trinity. A living, personal relationship with the Holy Trinity. So the reality of heaven, and it is real, the reality of heaven is relational. The reality is of my perfected relationship with God, my perfected union with God. And that really is the very simplest definition of heaven. Heaven is union with God the Father, a perfected union with God. It is, therefore, what we are made for. It is, as the Catechism teaches, the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings. Heaven is our destiny. This is the truth we have continually to remind ourselves of. We are created for happiness. We are created for eternal happiness with God. All the imperfections and the insufficiencies of our life, all the failures and inadequacies of our lives is not what we were made for. All the rubbish, to put it very simply, is not what we are made for. But God can use the rubbish to bring us to heaven, to bring us to that union for which we were created. This is the miracle. And all we have to do is to follow his Son, to repent and believe in the gospel. To all who received him, as the Gospel of John tells us, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life in communion with the Holy Trinity in heaven. And that brings us, very appropriately, to the end of this journey through the Creed. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for sharing this journey with me. And if you have any further questions or any comments, do get in touch with me on my Diocese of East Anglia email address. That's andrew.eburn at rcdea.org.uk. But for now, may God bless you all. May he bless your faith and make it fruitful. And may he bring you finally to that home he has always prepared for you, to eternal happiness with him in heaven. Amen.